Welcome to the Statues and Stories Hour with Adam Levinson. We are now heeding his advice. We are going to shut up so that we really understand how this incredible country was created and all the idiosyncrasies were ironed out by great people known as the Founding Fathers and specifically a gentleman named John Jay who doesn't really get talked about much. So, Adam, how are you today? I'm fantastic. How are you guys? I, I will say this. I'm a little tired because I got in last night on a 3 o'clock flight, <clears throat> but that's why we'll have lots of questions and back and forth uh, to keep our listeners awake so I don't fall asleep. Okay, fair, yep. fair enough. Go ahead. Uh, what? Let's have a, like a recap of last time we, uh, we spoke. You want to pretty much give us a summary on that? Right. I think it makes sense, Manny. I completely agree with you. To give some continuity from last week. So last week we were talking about, and it was a little bit of a departure for us because there was a, well, you know, this hour talks about American history, usually the founding generation, 1770s, 1780s, 1790s. But that we actually dovetailed a little bit into modern history because earlier this month there was a trip by the Trump administration to, to London, and the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, gave a tour at Buckingham Palace. And uh, the, the also, we want to point out that uh, in addition to listening to us on the radio, there is a separate website called statutesandstories.com, which is a history blog. So you can listen to us on the radio and you can listen to the podcast, but then you can read the primary sources, which are on statutesandstories.com. So about a week ago, we, we published a, a story of two Georges, which is what the media was calling this tour that President Trump was given by Queen Elizabeth. And this was one of the exhibits that was on display at Buckingham Palace and on the website statutesandstories.com. There are a bunch of these artifacts. And we made the point that if you're the queen and you're the president and you're showing 500, 600 years of royal treasures, which is what they have in Buckingham Palace, what do you show to an American president? So one of the tables, one of the displays was called the Tale of Two Georges. And last week, if you go back and listen to it on the podcast or onto the Special Stories website, you can read about, uh, and we've got pictures and examples of, of, of these wonderful, I keep saying exhibits. And one of the exhibits we talked about was a series of letters that were written by John Jay, his court correspondence as one of the founding fathers. And I think at the beginning you pointed out he's one of the overlooked founding fathers. Uh, so I wanted to continue that conversation that, that began last week. Uh, and that was one of the letters that was put on display for the president and for Queen Elizabeth and for the others who were coming through on that special tour. Other books and other items that were discussed last week included the map of New York, also some engravings of Washington and George III, and that's who the two Georges are on this tale of two Georges. And there was also uh, a book, a rare edition, which was published in 1781, because we love old books on this show and on, on the Statutes and Stories website, because these are primary sources that students and history lovers can sink their teeth into. So this book that was put on the table for the president and for Queen Elizabeth to look at was a book published in 1781 on, on direction of the Continental Congress. And remember, the Revolutionary War was still going on in 1781. So what did this book contain of all the thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of books that are in the, the royal collection? You know, why did they choose this one book to put on the table for the president and the queen to see? So it was a book published in 1781, which is referred to as the Magna Carta of American history, right, of, of American government. And long story short, it was the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the 13-state 
constitutions was put on the table. And then later, when you fast forward from 1781 to 1787, which is the summer that we're going to talk about tonight when we write the Constitution, the founding fathers who got together in that hot summer in May of 1787, that was one of the books that they were looking at because it had the, the, the guts, if you will, of those 13 constitutions, and they were going to be replacing the articles, at least some of them wanted to replace the articles, that the Federalists, the Anti-Federalists wanted to keep the articles. So that's where we left off last week, and that got me to think. Um, you know, again, that was a book of, of correspondence. One of the books on the table was John Jay's correspondence, which was given, by the way, uh, to. And we talked about this. That book of correspondence, his, his actual signed letters, was given when. Um, just double check who it was. It was one of the descendants of King George, who later became a, a king of England. When he was touring America in the 1860s, the grandson. So this was Prince Albert. So in 1860, Prince Albert was touring America to try to promote Anglo-British relations. So he went on tour of America. He was traveling under a, you know, one of his other names because uh, royalty has all kinds of. It's called Lord Renfro, R-E-N-F-R-E-W, and the book is inscribed, given to Lord Renfro with compliments of John Jay. And this wouldn't have been John Jay, the founding father. This is John Jay, the grandson of John Jay. Uh, so that was one of the books that was on the table. So now we're going to continue today into talking more about John Jay. And I want to save time to also discuss that summer in 1787 when, you know, this, this amazing document, I think everybody should agree that, you know, it has, it has imperfections, and over time those imperfections get cleaned up. But, um, you know, the, 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 what they accomplished during that summer, you know, historians you know, universally should be agreeing that it was a, a fantastic accomplishment. So I want to get into some of the, the explanations that historians come up with about how they were able to achieve what they achieved. But first, unless you want to go to the Constitution, does it make sense to start with John Jay? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so again, who was John Jay? So when I mention the name John Jay, give me some examples of what comes to mind when we say John Jay. He was the third author of the Federalist Papers. He and Madison and Hamilton agreed to write some letters, but then he got, I don't know if he got tied up in business or he was sick, but he didn't get as many letters in as they had originally intended. That's right. So perfect explanation. So I think that's a good place to start. So he was one of the three and the only three authors of the Federalist Papers. I only think he did about five. Right. And he mainly was focusing on foreign relations. And that's something we'll talk about. That was his area of expertise, among other things. And I also agree that he probably got sick that summer. And let me give you another item that people don't appreciate. And I'm going to ask Manny for some other John Jay accomplishments. No, no, no. Don't ask me. I'm not prepared. I just, I'm just a son of a Cuban refugee, man. Oh, come on. I'm a Cuban refugee. And you know some of this stuff when we talk about treaties and John Jay. Yeah. But um, before the Federalist Papers were written, and that gets a lot of attention, and it's probably recognized as one of the, you know, the linchpins of democratic theory. If you look at what the American experiment has produced, that those Federalist Papers written by Madison, Hamilton, and Jay stand out as, you know, will be studied for generations and uh, you know, all around the world for, for what, that, what that achieved. So it's not just the Constitution, it's also the Federalist Papers was as a high moment in political theory. But the, before they wrote the Federalist Papers, he wrote a, it was a pamphlet, it wasn't a book, and I want to give the name of the book because uh, one of these days I'm going to post on it, it's called An Address to the People of New York on the Subject of the Constitution. So this was a, uh, back then they would do these anonymous pamphlets that would go into the newspapers and would get published, and uh, he wrote that as a citizen of New York. So that's another reason why a lot of people, you know, didn't pay attention to the name John Jay, 
he was writing anonymously as mm -hmm. a citizen of New York. And this was a publication, and I want to give you an example. Uh, it was sent to Washington, and this is before the Constitution was ratified. It had to go to the 13 states. You needed nine of them to ratify it. And I, I came across a letter that... Washington wrote to John Jay. This is on May 15, 1788, so it's going through the different states to be ratified. Uh, New York ratifies it in, in the uh, July time frame. So this is May before New, before New York State has voted to, to approve it. And this is what Washington writes to John Jay. He says, The good sense, comma, forcible observations, temper, and moderation with which the pamphlet is written cannot fail, I should think, of making a serious impression upon the anti-federalist mind, were it not under the influence of such local views as will yield to no argument, no proof. Then Washington concludes the letter by saying, could you conveniently furnish me with another of these pamphlets? I would thank you, having sent the last to a friend of mine, George Washington. So a lot of people know that, again, that, that uh, you know, John Jay wrote the Federalist Papers with Madison and Hamilton, but he also had written, as I said, that famous pamphlet, which isn't as famous, called An Address to the People of New York, which was also important in getting New York to ratify the Constitution. So that's, uh, that's an example of some of his writings. Uh, give me another example of what, uh, this is for Manny, of what John Jay became famous for. Well, the Jay's Treaty. The Jay's Treaty. So we'll talk about the Jay's Treaty. That's an example where... Of executive power. Popular. I'm sorry? But, but, it, was a, it was the first real example of executive power. But that was a treaty making peace with Britain and really kind of not supporting France, which is what the Democrat-Republicans wanted, like Jefferson, I think, right? Uh, yeah, well, it was the presidential's will over the sediments of his Congress, basically. Hmm. Uh, the popular view, if you will, was uh, we should go to war with France. France was our ally, and we've talked about on other evenings, and also go to the website, statutesandstories.com, and we've got three parts, part one, two, and three, that go into a lot of detail about Jay's Treaty, because that was arguably one of the most controversial treaties in American history, and I would argue one of the most important treaties, because that kept us out of another war with England, and uh, you know then we wound up fighting with them in 1812. But Washington, uh, and this also gets to the issue of leadership, and maybe that'll be a topic for next week. What is leadership, and what are good examples of leadership in America? early American history. But the Washington, Hamilton, and Jay, um, even though the popular sentiment was to go to war with, with, uh, with, with Britain, and Washington wanted to re remain neutral. He didn't think we were in a position where we could fight another war. And let me give you a, a quick observation. Ellis, one of my favorite historians, and I was reading one of his books on the plane uh, yesterday. So Ellis, in talking about Jay's treaty, says that it linked American security and economic development to the British fleet. And remember, the British Navy was the most influential and the most powerful naval force at the time in the world. So Ellis is pointing out that it linked American economic security to the British fleet, which provided a protective shield and incalculable value through the 19th century. So it allowed us to build up and to uh, begin the process of industrializing. Uh, so it was an important treaty, but it was not it was not popular at the time. And people can read about it if you go to the website or listen to some of our prior discussions in your podcast. What else can we talk about, Jay? And let me give you some other examples of things that people may not appreciate. But he was New York State's first chief justice. Justice. Uh, this was after the New York Constitution had been written, and he was the principal drafter of the New York State Constitution. He was a delegate to the First Continental Congress, which met in 1777, starting in 1774. He was the president, by the way, of the Second Continental Congress, which met beginning in 1778. So he was involved with both Continental Congresses and were 
sort of uh, resisting and protesting the British. That's the first Continental Congress, and the second Continental Congress is when we're going to the Declaration of Independence and fighting with the British. That's the second Continental Congress. So he was the president of the Continental Congress. He was the first Secretary of Foreign Affairs under the Articles of Confederation. And what you're seeing is that this is a guy who served in all three branches, if you will, of government. He was a judge and a lawyer. He was the president of the Continental Congress, which is a legislative capacity. He also worked as a Secretary of Treasury. Back then they called it the Secretary of Foreign Affairs, so that's an executive branch position. So he had, he was a governor of New York, and we'll talk about what he did as governor, and I'll mention it real quickly. He outlawed, he signed the law that outlawed slavery in New York. He was an abolitionist with mm -hmm. Hamilton and with Franklin. So these are the guys that understood. So what, he's a, a June, what's it called? A June 16th? <laughs> no, no, he was an abolitionist. I know, but uh, what's that famous? Juneteenth. The no, Juneteenth. that's in Texas. That's 1865 I know, it's in, in Texas. Texas. So then he's the New York version of the Juneteenth. Yep. He, he was a lot earlier. Okay. Go ahead. And Manny, thank you for mentioning that, because we have on statutesandstories.com, and we may have mentioned it at the end of last week. Um, you know, this past week, June 19th, is the story of when, mm -hmm. in Texas, the abolition of slavery was finally recognized, and that's, that's a holiday in Texas and around the country. Mm -hmm. So we have a big post on that on Statutes and Stories. And there's a similar, I agree, a, a day in New York, when New York was one of the early states to abolish slavery without having to fight a war. And people have criticized it that you know, it was a gradual emancipation. So the children born of slaves became free after a period of uh, becoming an indentured servant, I think until they were 21 or their early 20s. Uh, but at least it was the peaceful abolition of slavery, which New York accomplished under uh, the, the law was signed by, by John Jay, and this was something Hamilton was pushing for. Uh, and that gets to this idea that the Constitutional Convention, the Northerners who opposed slavery, they, they couldn't accomplish it politically in Philadelphia because the southern states, and we know who some of the southerners were, uh, and we can talk about that later, um, you know, they wouldn't have agreed to the compromise if, uh, if slavery was going to be outlawed. And that's not the subject of today's discussion. But the point is that John Jay was a leader as an abolitionist. Uh, so that was one of the things that he did as governor. He was also in favor of building roads and canals and building a New York State. So he was a visionary as well. He was a visionary, a penal reform in New York. So mm -hmm. this, this is a guy that gets a lot and should have a lot of recognition for what he did. But some, some other observations about, uh, about John Jay. Um, interestingly, you know, he was a man of principle, and he resigned and did not sign the Declaration of Independence because he wasn't prepared yet uh, to go to the, that far of a, um, you know, it was controversial. And Adams, one of these nights we'll talk more about Adams, is sort of guiding the process of declaring independence and then gradually heading in that direction of making that break. So he's the real reason why New York so, did not sign the Constitution? No, no, no. They were the, no, they were he, the, they were the last holdout. He might have influenced the all Constitution. The other. No, no, he's talking about the Declaration. Oh, okay. I'm he sorry, didn't, sorry. And that's why John Hancock became president of the oh. Continental Congress, and they declared Constitution. Okay, okay, okay. Jay I'm sorry. Was I'm sorry. I, confu I conflated the two stories. Forgive me. Okay, continue. You're, you're right from the standpoint of New York had three delegates to the Constitution. Only Hamilton was the remaining delegate that yep. signed the Constitution from New York. And it was going to be an uphill battle to get it ratified. And John Jay, who was sort of a moderate at the beginning, and he was supporting the British, and he came from a French Huguenot family. They were very wealthy. And one of these days I want to take a trip, uh, and I'll post about it, to the Jay Estate, which is in Rye, New York. And um, we can talk yep. later about that part. Of well, New Rochelle is right there. That's I'm a, sorry? New Rochelle is New Rochelle, a, exactly. Yeah. 
French Huguenot. Uh, there's a lot of Jay family history. Uh, so his father was Peter Jay, was a wealthy merchant. Uh, so John Jay goes to college at King's College, and because of business connections and legal connections, you know, he, he is not in a rush to declare war. He wanted to see if we could work things out. In fact, I mentioned earlier that he wrote a pamphlet anonymously called An Address to the People of New York on the Subject of the Constitution. But also, and that was in the, the 1780s, but in the 1770s, he wrote an address to the people of Great Britain. This is another pamphlet he had written, and I'll post about these one of these days. Yeah, that one we can have a whole story about because I don't think too many people know that, mm-hmm. that he actually addressed the British people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, what, he wrote to the people of Britain to try to promote a peaceful resolution that, you know, if we get these minds together, we don't need to be fighting about this. So he's trying to appeal to the people of Britain, uh, you know, that they should support American uh, ideas of no taxation without representation. There are ways to resolve it without, uh, you know, going all the way out to a, you know, to, to a, a full war. So that he was originally trying to do that, but he evolved. And I, I think that gets to what leadership is. And let me give you some examples. So um, you know, he starts off as, I won't call him a loyalist, but he later evolves. And it was after the British attacked Virginia, and so after the Declaration of Independence. And he eventually then becomes one of the most ardent liberal, I'm careful with the terminology, one of the most ardent, uh, no, no longer a loyalist, but a, a patriot or a rebel, uh, realizing that, that we've, we've crossed the Rubicon, and now he becomes uh, you know, one of the, you know, the great leaders to fight the Revolutionary War. He wasn't a soldier, but he was involved with the Continental Congress. So, so he... he uh, was, there any, was there any reason why he never became president? His name was thrown around, and I think you mentioned it earlier, because of the Jay's Treaty was so right. unpopular, and that may have been one of the reasons, and you know, politics are all kinds of reasons, whenever a historian tries to give you, or anyone for that matter, gives you one sole reason, that they're probably uh, very... Yeah, so it was well, that, that there, was the and there weren't that many opportunities. You had Washington twice, and Adams, who was, and he was from the same party as, as Adams and Washington, but then in 1800, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe really locked it up. So that was it. It was over. Was he a chief justice of the United States? So John Jay was the first chief justice. In fact, when Washington became president in 1789, when Washington sworn in, he goes to John Jay, and and I'm going to tell you a story later about what what he accomplished. No, no, tell us now. Okay, so two stories. So Washington says to John Jay, uh, what position do you want in my government? And he was the first person approached by Washington. And uh, Washington offered him Secretary of State. He turned it down. He wanted to be Chief Justice. But okay. he turned down Secretary of State, which is why it was then given to Jefferson. So an attorney just begging to be an attorney. No, Jeez. no, he was going to be the first Chief Justice. He was going to set precedent. The big kahuna. The big kahuna attorney. No, but then, the, the guy, but then he, during his Chief Justiceship, he went to England to, be, to negotiate Jay's Treaty. So there wasn't right. that much. And I, I think one of the reasons why, on the question of why didn't he run for president, that his name was thrown into the hat, so he did get electoral college votes. But uh, one of the reasons I think, and a lot of historians I've read make the point, you know, why was there so much vocal uh, opposition to Jay's treaty? And I think part of the reason was that the Democrat-Republicans, or if you want to call them the Jeffersonians, or the party that was emerging under Jefferson and Madison, they needed an issue. And remember how they, they thought they had an issue with regard to, we can talk about some of the other issues from, from prior nights, but um, 
what, what's my point? My point is that uh, they needed an issue to hammer the Federalists with, and Jay's treaty became that issue. Mm -hmm. And by hammering Jay's treaty, they're, ham they're hammering on Jay, who potentially could have been the replacement after Adams. So it was a way by beating up on Jay to beat up on that treaty and uh, to enhance the stature of the Democrat-Republican. So it was, a, it was a big campaign item is what it was. Yeah, basically, politics, once again, undermining the, the, the general sentiment of the country. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's liberty. That's the way it goes. Yeah, that's what democracy sounds like, plain and simple. So going back to the Revolutionary period, he was originally, you know, a very moderate member of the Continental Congress. Uh, when the British uh, engaged in um, destructive activity, and uh, this is Norfolk, Virginia, that was burned by the British, and he realized that he should support independence, and he evolved from a moderate then to an ardent patriot. So that was uh, the description I wanted for him. But the other story I wanted to give you real quick, and it's best for me to read it a little bit from uh, the book American Dialogue, because Joseph Ellis does a phenomenal... Uh, and this is, I always like to say, I don't make this stuff up. I get this from diaries and correspondence of the Founding Fathers and from uh, from other historians, because I'm just a lawyer. So the book... <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm, working, I'm working on you. <laughs> the, the book I am referring to here is American Dialogue by Joseph Ellis, who's one of my favorite historians. And I'll give you some other historians that can, whose names are going to come up. We're going to be talking about David Ramsey. We'll talk, we'll talk about Douglas Adair and Gordon Wood. We've talked about Gordon Wood yep. on other nights. Yep. But I want to bring us now to Versailles. This is Paris in August of 1782. So we, we've won at, and what was the battle, the big turning point towards the end of the war where we defeat the British in Virginia? What, what's, that, what's that battle? Yorktown. Yorktown. So we beat the British in New York, and that's 1781. The war is far from being over because the Treaty of Paris doesn't get signed until 1783. So this is a period now where we have to negotiate with the British, who are basically in the position where, you know, they're they're going to not surrender, but they realize they can read the writing on the wall because the popular well, support. they're still holding New York. Exactly. They still hold New York until evacuation day in 1783. Yep. So the British have realized, because the British Prime Minister resigned, they realized that it's just a matter of time we have to work out the details. So John Jay is sent uh, to join, and remember who was in Paris at the time. Benjamin Franklin was in Paris. He was the American ambassador, if you will, that was getting support. For, and French support was critical, as was Spanish support, and money that was being lent by, uh, by, the, uh, by Holland. So John Jay is sent as part of the negotiating team. And what I'm going to describe here is that uh, Lawrence, this is Henry Lawrence, who is the father of, of um, I can't remember the name of Henry Lawrence's son, uh, J James Lawrence, who is a friend of Alexander Hamilton. Um, so Henry Lawrence of South Carolina was sent, but he was captured on the way to London by British ships and was thrown into the Tower of London. So Franklin, although he's in Paris, he's got a bad case of gout. He really can't get up and he can't go anywhere. He's sort of uh, stuck at the, at the time in, in the, the location where he was living in his residence. And the, the other members of the delegation were Adams, but Adams was still in Holland trying to get more money out of the – that was his position at the time was trying to get money out of the, out of the Dutch um, to pay off loans and to help support the American – militarism and uh, military arms, etc., if, if the, the war was to continue. So at, at this moment in August of 1782, it's really just Jay and Adams, because they said Henry Lawrence was in the Tower of London and Adams hadn't arrived yet. And because Jay had been the ambassador to Spain at parts 
during periods of the Revolutionary War. He knew a lot about um, what the Spanish were interested in and also what the French were interested in. And the Continental Congress had given instructions to the American delegation that you are required to work closely with and coordinate with France and Spain because France and Spain were pivotal in providing support to America. So we couldn't negotiate without them. We were part of a negotiating team. So Jay is sent as the one American because Franklin can't travel and the others haven't arrived to meet with the French and Spanish ambassadors to get the strategy together. So that's the pain, the picture I'm trying to paint for you. This is on August 3rd of 1782. So John Jay meets with Aranda, who is the Spanish head of the Spanish delegation. I'll figure out what his first name is, Count Aranda. And at the meeting with Aranda, Again, as I said, it was necessary because the American negotiators were under strict orders, quote, to undertake nothing without the knowledge and concurrence of France. So Aranda was either the French or the Spanish ambassador. And since the French were bound by treaty to consult with Spain, Jay also had to consult with the Spanish. So Jay was obligated to meet with the Spanish. So he meets with the Spanish minister. And let me figure out who this is. This is um, he's meeting with Aranda, who is the French ambassador. And Aranda takes out a map of, of the colonies, and he puts puts his finger on what is now Lake Erie, and he moves his finger down through mid-Ohio, going down to the Gulf, of, the, Gulf of, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. So this is the French ambassador putting his finger on the map, and he draws a line. And I'm going to read now from Joseph Ellis's book. Everything east of the line, Aranda declared, belonged to the United States, so everything east of this line, everything west to Spain. He was essentially carving up the British Empire in North America and claiming a share of the spoils for Spain, because Spain had helped France, and Spain had fought in the Alabama, Mississippi area, and had supported and provided, uh, we talked about it in other, other evenings, uh, the, the Spanish silver, and that was useful in, in, uh, in the Battle of Yorktown. So the French ambassador is drawing the line and giving everything west of this fictitious line, which goes south of the uh, mid-Ohio and south of Lake Erie, to, to go to Spain as their spoils for the war. So what does John Jay do? So John Jay, I'm reading again from Joseph Ellis, Jay hesitated for only a few seconds, then announced that he had no need to draw a line. He pointed to the Mississippi River yep. as the new western frontier or border of the United States. I'm paraphrasing that the Jay, without having received any guidance from his superiors, because back then they can't pick up a phone and call, they didn't have telegraph, takes six weeks to get a, a message sent by ship, if you can even get a ship to London, because the British could intercept a lot of ships, as it happened with Henry Lawrence. So on his own, uh, John Jay made the decision to say no to the French ambassador, Aranda. So he then, uh, I don't know how quickly he does it, but he gets on his horse, he heads over from Versailles, where he was meeting with the, the, the French ambassador, and he goes directly to Franklin's quarters to tell our senior statesman, to tell Benjamin Franklin about his conversation. And now I'm going to read again from the book, American Dialogue by Joseph Ellis. So pacing back and forth while puffing away on his clay pipe as Franklin lay on the sofa listening, Jay explained that it was now abundantly clear that America's long-term interests demanded that the negotiating team disregard their orders to consult with the French. Then Jay tossed his clay pipe into the fireplace for emphasis. So Jay tells Franklin that, hey, we can no longer be subject to and listen to the Spanish and French because their interests are no longer aligned with ours. Uh, then Adams eventually gets back in from Holland. 
He speaks to Adams. This is a quote. Adams says it's glorious to have broken such orders. He agrees. We're not going to listen to the instructions that we receive from the Continental Congress. We have to part ways with France and Spain when it comes to the Treaty of 1783, the Treaty of Paris. So this is Adams saying uh, that it's glorious to break such orders, and so it will appear to all of posterity. I'll give you a little bit more of this background of this story, which I think is leadership. They're recognizing what they had to do. They had to seize the moment that the political cards had turned, that they can't listen to France and Spain in terms of what our strategies they should be looking at for America, not for our, our allies at that time, because, as I said, this is a disparate separation of interests. And uh, originally, when the members of the Continental Congress got word that the, this delegation, who do they think they are? They're ignoring the instructions that we gave them. Once they got a copy of what the treaty says that we get all the land to the Mississippi River. And let me do some geography with you. Um, this is Alabama, Mississippi, Kentucky, Tennessee, uh, Ohio, then all of the parts of those states, all of Michigan, Indiana, and I was just in Minnesota yesterday, uh, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and the Mississippi River, all of that territory was because of John Jay convincing Franklin and Adams that uh, we need to look out for America and uh, not take orders from the French or the Spanish. Whoa. Good. <laughs> Whoa. I'm Here is a quote from John Adams. And as Ellis likes to say, John Adams had a big ego, and deservedly he had a big ego. And, uh, you know, he's always worried about reputations. And uh, here, this is a paraphrase, uh, you know, Adams to his dying days. Uh, so humility for Adams was not a natural act. So he went to his grave praising the leadership that John Jay showed in Paris. And this is a quote from Adams, and I'll put this on Statutes and Stories as part of this post about who was John Jay. So this is what Adams said about John Jay. All right, so let me get this right. Jay was more important than any of the rest of us. Indeed, had almost as much weight as all the rest of us together. So this is Adams talking about the American team of Jay, Adams, and Franklin who negotiated that Treaty of Paris, 1783. So he, for for someone like Adams to say to to take a backseat to Jay is yeah, un- no, well, Jay un- showed a lot of courage and and foresight by saying America should go all the way out to the Mississippi not have a land border which is artificial and would have just caused trouble. It would have, it would have brought us into a war with Spain. Okay, so by having a river, yep. uh, that could also be trespassed. But no, no, it's not the same. You don't it's just have a to real physical, it, yeah. it's a real... Absolutely. So that It's kind of like the Rio Grande is between Mexico right. and Texas. That was different, though. But And then the, the Great Lakes are the northern border. So the west border is Mississippi... River and the Great Lakes are on the north, and that makes a, a great basin for uh, expansion, westward expansion. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, back in those days, it was visionary because it was geographic. Yeah. Today, that, that doesn't Well, hold. it's different. Now we have the Internet and everything. But, no, that was great. And the British didn't, didn't leave those territories uh, in 1783. They evacuated New York in November 25, 1783, but they were in Detroit until much longer than that. So That's they had to be picked out. So let me pick up with that. So even though the Treaty of 1783, which is the Treaty of Paris, gave us the land, uh, which is let's call it the Northwest part of, they called it the, the Northwest back then. Yeah, the Northwest uh, Territory, yeah. Northwest Territory, and uh, I like to joke that uh, I went to college at the University of Michigan, and the University of Michigan calls itself, uh, they say on the shirts, uh, I almost bought one of these when I was a student, that Harvard is the Michigan, let me get this right, um, so that was the Northwest. So um, they would say that Harvard is the 
the Michigan of no, that Michigan is the Harvard of the Midwest. No? It's along those lines. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, you know, Northwestern University was named after that because that was the Northwest Territory. There you go. So, and University of Chicago and Northwestern are, are good rivals. Right. So, let me just put the exclamation mark on the British, despite the fact that the treaty forced them to leave that territory because America wasn't cooperating with all its obligations. We weren't paying off our war debts, right? Uh, we were supposed to pay the British for loans prior to the war, and the South wasn't happy because um, this gets into there was some, the British took a lot of slaves with them when they evacuated New York. So there was some built up animosity, even though the treaty said we got the territory. The British, uh, were, were, as you're, you're exactly right, they were keeping soldiers in forts and the Northwest Territory, and that's where Jay's Treaty comes in. Jay's Treaty gets the British out of those territories. The British are also instigating problems with the Native Americans in those territories. Uh, so, you know, Jay's Treaty succeeded in really getting that land back to America consistent with the treaty that he had negotiated. So that treaty was negotiated after St. Clair's, General St. Clair's defeat, I guess. So, so now we get to connect the dots. So right. listeners who remember probably three weeks ago or so when we were talking about executive privilege, we gave examples of when executive privilege was first raised by Washington and Hamilton. Uh, Jay wasn't a party to the executive privilege, but we gave uh, three examples of executive privilege under the Washington administration. And uh, what was the first, you just mentioned it, what was the first example of the use of executive privilege or the dis discussing discussion of executive privilege under Washington's administration? I think it was the defeat of General St. Clair's expedition to the Northwest. That was a U.S. general. That's right. So the, the Indians, the Native Americans, uh, and I don't remember the name of the Indian tribe, I think it was Chief Turtle, uh, <laughs> routed the Americans. It was one of the worst American military defeats. It was a it was a wonderful, from the Native American standpoint, it was a victory that they were able to defend their land. Uh, and then, of course, they would later be defeated. Uh, but that, that prompted an investigation by Congress wanting to know why was it that uh, it was a slaughter of American troops? Was it the fact that they weren't adequately supplied? Was General St. Clair responsible for leading them into to a, into a massacre and being caught by surprise with his, was at his leadership. So that was an example of where Congress wanted to exert, and I, I agree that Congress does have oversight authority, but the question was when they asked for the records of and the materials and correspondence with this general who was the governor of the, that territory, uh, should Washington turn it over? And he debated it with his cabinet. And if you go to statutesofstories.com, we have the, they weren't minutes, but it's Jefferson's diary recording what occurred in that one of the first cabinet meetings. When Jefferson is in that first cabinet, Hamilton's in the cabinet, Henry Knox is the Secretary of War, they sit down with Washington, they study it, and they make a decision that because none of these documents would have been negative for American, um, you know, there's nothing secret about it, uh, they did agree to turn it all over. So they considered executive privilege, but they didn't exercise it. And then we talked about another night's the, the two following examples of where executive privilege was used in one capacity or another. But this was the first instance uh, when executive privilege uh, came up and the president realized there would be examples of when we could and should not turn over materials when they're related to, you know, diplomatic secrets is a good example. But um, so that's some more story about Jay. But let me give you some more overlooked, and these are things, and one of these knocked my socks off when I saw it. And I want you to tell me when we've got 15 minutes left, because I want to spend some time talking about uh, the, you know, the different approaches to history and the Constitutional Convention. So this is one that really surprised me, which I had no knowledge about. And this comes from the CIA website, and I never go to the CIA website, but the CIA website describes John Jay, and 
here would, the question would be, why is the CIA website, and these are the historians for the CIA, talking about John Jay? And the quick answer, and I'll ask you some questions about this, but James Fenmore Cooper wrote a novel, and the name of the novel was The Spy. Have either of you guys heard about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry? Yes, yes. The spy. He, he was also the author of Last of the Mohicans, but he did have one called The Spy. So The Spy by James Fenmore Cooper. Um, talks about, and let me give some good quotes here, it was the, this is what the CIA website says, that it was the first national-level American counterintelligence chief was John Jay. And that's a quote, the first national-level American counterintelligence chief, because he's from New York. The British are eventually going to take over New York, but before they do, you know, John Jay is involved in making sure that the loyalists don't uh, you know, burn the city, don't uh, confiscate and uh, cause problems. So they were using counterintelligence to figure out which British loyalists were trying to undermine the, you know, the, the Washington and his forces and the Patriots. So he was very, very involved with, let's call it, in a counter-espionage ring. So he headed the network of informants during the revolution uh, that was working against the British. So that was John Jay, was a spy master. Go figure that. Right, so um, here's two examples of what would happen when John Jay would go away on these diplomatic missions. So when he returns from the negotiations for the Treaty of Paris, he discovers that he had been appointed to be Secretary of Foreign Affairs. And this happens again when he returns from negotiating in 1795. So 1783 is the Treaty of Paris. 1795, he's asked, even though he's Chief Justice, he's asked by Washington uh, to go lead the negotiation, and Hamilton uh, also wants Jay to do it. So Jay goes to negotiate with the British, uh, and when he returns, he learns that he has now been appointed, or not appointed, but he was elected to, to the position. When he returns, he's a chief justice. He was off on this diplomatic mission. When he returns, and you won't necessarily know the answer, but he learns that he's been elected to what position? Governor of New York? There you go, Governor of New York. So this is two examples. He returns from these diplomatic missions, and he's just changed his job title. So he didn't uh, campaign or anything? He did not campaign. They didn't really campaign back then. They, um, you know, they, because they considered themselves to be philosopher kings. You know mm. that the people should want them. That it was beneath their dignity to actively campaign. And that gets to Aaron Burr. And let me give you a Burr quote, which is phenomenal. So Aaron Burr was a consummate politician, and he had his fingers on politics and the will of the people. So Aaron Burr, when John Jay gets sent to be the lead negotiator to negotiate Jay's treaty. Remember, we just said John Jay was the Chief Justice of the United States. So Aaron Burr drafts a resolution opposing Jay's appointment. Let me read this to you. On constitutional grounds, and Aaron Burr was a lawyer. So Burr argues that the Supreme Court Chief Justice should not hold, quote, any other office or employment, I'm skipping ahead, at the pleasure of the executive, according to Burr, doing so was, quote, contrary to the spirit of the Constitution, exposing the justice, quote, to the influence of the executive, which was mischievous and impolitic. Yeah, I agree with him. I don't disagree either. So that's Aaron Burr saying that someone who's serving as a judge, and today judges would agree, but back then... um, Washington didn't have a problem with it. Well, they probably he probably didn't have a lot of business as chief justice because it had just started. That's right. They did not have much before the court. And John Jay, who better to negotiate that treaty with right. England? Yep. The guy had you know led the negotiation, as you heard from Adams, yeah. to negotiate the Treaty of Paris, which was a generation earlier in 1783. Yep. No, he was good. What do you mean? Good? Like That's kind of an understatement. Uh, yeah. Was he good? He was great. He did a great job. Getting, going the boundaries all the way to Mississippi. 
Absolutely. Boundaries all the way to the Mississippi River. He was an avid Bible reader. Jay served for seven years as the president of the American Bible Society. Okay. That's, that connected to the fact that he was wanting to abolish slavery. And uh, here's something else. In 1819, so he's been retired for many years in Westchester County, uh, when the Missouri Compromise is going through to Missouri as a slave state. Uh, what does John Jay do? And the quick answer is uh, he was very adamant that it should not be introduced right. nor permitted in any of the new states. You did not want slavery extended right. into the... No, uh, to the yep. That was a mistake. Missouri was never really a slave state. It doesn't have the agriculture for it, and all the, all the uh, immigrants were uh, non-slave types. There were Germans and others that came to, to didn't come to own slaves. So, yeah, that was, a big, that was a big mistake, letting in Missouri as a slave state. But who was? What were the power players of the day? Well, the southern states were pushing for to expand slavery. Up that that far north? Yeah. Unbelievable. It, I mean, what? They wanted Kansas and Nebraska too. They yeah. Up, they ended up being basketball states. In the well, in the 1850s, that's part of what led to the Civil War. The the Civil War. There was a fighting, guerrilla fighting in Kansas, between southern and uh, northern sympathizers. So, and this is bleeding. Yeah. So, so one of these nights, we'll, we'll go into the, the Missouri Compromise and the Compromise of 1850 yeah. and um, lead up into the Civil War. So we'll do that another night. Well, now you're at your 15-minute mark. We've got 15 minutes. Perfect timing. So I want to now ask you guys, and you know, it's a very rich area, and we'll continue this next week, but uh, why was it that the constant, what explanations do historians give on how this group of approximately 56, I think it was, um, representatives from all the colonies except for Rhode Island are able to sit together in a room and come up with you know what I think stands out in the history of the world is one of the one of the best examples of democracy in action. How, how did they do it? What are some of the explanations that historians have given? Okay. And uh, just throw out if you if you can think it through with me. What what what? And I'll give you the name of one of the books. So one of the books that talks about this is the the uh, the miracle in Philadelphia or the miracle at Philadelphia by Catherine Drinker Bowen. Biddle. You give it. Wasn't it Biddle? Drinker Biddle, right? Or that's the law firm. I think her last name is Bowen, B-O-W-E-N. Okay. Stop being such an obvious attorney, Mike. No, no. Her her name is from a famous Philadelphia law firm, Brinker, Brinker, Biddle, and Smith or something like that. Yui, Tui, Tui for Yui. All right. Many, it's a reflex when lawyers hear other names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You start spitting out all the last names. Everybody all right, the, yep. Nobody fits on the business card. Not Brinker, everybody fits. Biddle, and something, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Brinker, Biddle, yeah. Remember, the business card is really small. All Not right. everybody's name can be on it. Okay, go ahead. So one explanation for why and how they accomplished what they accomplished, and you know, we mere mortals can't say if it's right or wrong, is that there was a miracle, and we could define miracles in different ways. You know, was it divine inspiration? Was it uh, the hand of God actually reaching down and, and orchestrating what happened? Um, and the founders, in some respects, and I can quote some of these when I post it on the website, refer to it as a miracle. I think more in the colloquial sense. It's pro- more uh, providence. What's yeah, providence. Providence. So there are lots of explanations. So we could have a divine explanation. But there's another, and I'm going to walk through about four or five, depending on how much time we have. So one explanation has to do with the fact that there was a crisis, and they didn't have any other alternative, really, right? If they, there was no plan B. So well, I mean, a lot of people uh, say that these rights were already theirs, and they were being right, stripped. Right, they were the rights of Englishmen. Yeah, they already had these yeah. rights, and they were being stripped of these rights, because they were All pretty right. much living 
living well, the, uh, the one freely. Histo- my favorite historian of all these that you've noted, and I like all of the ones you said, is Bernard Balin. And he wrote a couple of books on the ideological origins of the American Revolution. And what, what he said is that all these Americans were really descendants, in, intellectual descendants of the uh, English uh, rebels of the uh, 1640s, the the guys who took who beheaded uh, Charles uh, the First, and they had all these ideas about standing up to government, and they were radical dissenting Protestants. They were not Church of England people. They were uh, Presbyterian Congregationalist dissenting Christians, and well, they that were. Explain, and that explains for the force of their faiths yeah, today. Yeah, absolutely, and and so they were they were very skeptical of government. They were skeptical of the king. They were even skeptical of Parliament, and they were skeptical of the established Church of England, which they, that's why we we Congress shall establish no church. So this is they, they came from a cultural tradition of rebellion in defense of your liberties, IES. Uh, and then that compounded with the glorious revolution of 1689, where the king was again expelled in a coup d'etat, and then the Bill of Rights were, were proclaimed in, in England, uh, or in Britain by then. Uh, I think that is the, and I think Bernard Balin is the historian from Harvard, he's now in his 80s, I think, who really did the basic research. He went back and looked at the pamphlets, and he looked at the pamphlets during the English Civil War. It really came out of the Civil War, out of uh, Cromwell, and then John Locke in 1689 with his theory. So I don't know what you make of that, Adam. Let me give you a a quick answer, and then we're going to give homework for people who are listeners. So for next week, try to figure out what you can, come up with explanations on what contributed, and there's no one single factor, uh, to the success of that summer, and there was no guarantee that they were going to have a success. So let me give you more information about Balin, because I completely agree with you. And I don't know if he's still alive, but uh, what I like about his explanation, and I'm going to refer to it, I'm going to give names on the different explanations. I'm going to refer to it as a geographic explanation. You're giving the, the, um, you know, the philosophical explanation that they resisted the Church of England, and you know, the, let's call it a um, you know, what you're describing is more of a sort of a, a political doctrinal approach of, of influences. But I'm going to pick up on what he also recognizes as a, what we call a geographic explanation. So he points out that these colonists, you know, the 13 colonies, were on the periphery of the British Empire. This is the last place you would expect is flowering, this explosion of democratic ideas and the creativity and what they accomplished. So he makes the point that, that this backwood population of this three to five million farmers who were basically nobody. They were minor gentry, Washington, in the scheme of royalty from France and Britain. You know, these were nobodies, right? These were these were merchants, the bastard son of a Scottish merchant. So uh, they were removed from the epicenters of learning in Paris and France. And, and Balin makes the observation, and this is your, your point also, Ed, that the Scottish Enlightenment also happened in Scotland on the periphery of, uh, this is Edinburgh, is not London, and that's where David Hume and Adam Smith came from. So sometimes, this is, I think, one of the good explanations for the revolution, that the best ideas aren't coming from, and this dovetails a little bit with your last hour, the the, the best ideas don't always come from the biggest cities with the smartest minds. They come from the periphery sometimes, and it's the yokels and and those that aren't constrained by the, the sclerotic thinking and by conventional wisdom. How do you like that? Yep, absolutely. So, in other words, Take that. So, the original 
theme of our show today when I said if everybody right, the electoral college and nah, the importance nah, of the nah, periphery. Nah, nah. It's more profound, my friend. Oh, okay, go ahead. When everybody's thinking alike, somebody isn't thinking. Mm-hmm. That's the central theme of today's show. Okay. Too many people like to think alike all the time, and then there's one person that's thinking, mm-hmm. and he's thinking unconventional. Good. All right. Good. Good. No, good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. You know. How about that for the layman? Yep. Accompanied by two attorneys. Okay. Uh, I, I I agree that you guys disagree because of your silence. No, we don't disagree. We, I, we agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Different, the jury uh, is still out. Okay. Continue, Adam. All right, so let me give you a quote about the miracle. So this is coming from a Washington letter to Lafayette, because I love citing uh, the letters and correspondence. So Washington was very close to Lafayette. I, I think that Hamilton and Lafayette were basically, you know, they weren't adopted, but uh, functionally they were adopted sons to Washington. So this is a letter of February 7th, 1788. Washington writes this to Lafayette, quote, It appears to me then, little short of a miracle, that the delegates from so many different states, which states you know are also different from each other, in their manners, circumstances, and prejudices, should unite in forming a system of national government, he puts government in caps, so little liable as well-founded objections. So little liable to well-founded objections. So Washington used the word miracle in that letter to to, to, uh, to Lafayette, and I know we have a couple minutes left, so rather than going into the different historical, and we'll go into the histi- historiography or the uh, the different, uh, we'll talk next next week about the great man theory and the different, uh, we'll, we'll talk about economics, we'll talk about uh, the different uh, philosophical approaches to history, but I want to end a little bit now with where we left off last week. So last week we were talking about this, this state visit to London. Uh, so let me give you some questions. So this is a lighter moment. So during this state visit, uh, there was an exquisite men- menu for that state banquet at Buckingham Palace, and the Queen and the President. Uh, so how many months did it take them to prepare that royal dinner? How many months? Throw out a number. Months? Why does it take months? Oh, yeah. Everything. Throw out a number. I would say six months. Perfect. Six months. Now, how many guests attended that state dinner uh, when Queen Elizabeth had President Trump and the First Lady sitting with the royal family? How many guests at that dinner? Oh, God. Uh, About 50? Sure. Keep going. How many guests were at that state dinner? Really? A hundred? Keep going. Well, I'm thinking of the long table, so... No, wow. Oh, yeah, so there must have been, I don't know... Now we got to go into at the Buckingham Palace. You have, to, you have to go look at the picture online. Hundred and oh, th- thread another number. One more chance. One fifty. One seventy. Jeez. Wow. Right, here's another question for you. So the menu, which took six months to prepare, how many drinking glasses were meticulously set on the table? How many drinking glasses? Three for each guest. Four. Keep going. Oh my God! Forget no, it. God knows how much silverware then. Like five forks. Glassware. You have five <laughs> glasses for each guest? Six. A glass for water, for champagne toast, champagne, sure. red and white wines, a dessert wine, and a port. Oh, my Cig- God. Oh, How about cig- Did they have cigars? <laughs> that would have been awesome. Let me give you some more about that dinner. And remember, the reason we're mentioning this is because last week we went through a list of these artifacts. And I've corresponded, by the way, with Buckingham Palace and uh, Windsor Castle because I needed to get some questions answered about some mm-hmm. of these items. And they responded. So we're going to talk more about that. But, um, so each 
place. I'm sorry, each place setting. Now, Adam, did they respond because you were an attorney? Did they respond because no, they were official? statutes and stories. Oh, because the statutes and stories. And WSQF. And because of right. Blink Radio. So I told them I was going to be blogging about it, and I shared some information with them. I told them things about the items. I thought it was professional were... privilege, quite frankly. <laughs> so I, I, the media described that there were two engravings, but I wanted to know which exact engraving, because if I'm going to put a picture on the website, I need to know exactly which picture. So I was asking them questions about the, you know, the items, because I couldn't find the pictures online in any of the news reports. So some other items from that, uh, from that state dinner. So here we go. There were serving stations. So it's 170 guests. How many serving stations? And I will answer the, ask you this. I'll give you some more examples of what a serving station is manned by, uh, or, or, or uh, I shouldn't say manned, but uh, yeah, man. operated by Person. a page, a footman, a underbutler, and a wine butler. This sounds like How many serving stations for the 170 guests. This sounds like Downton Abbey. Exactly, 19 serving stations, oh. and they had a traffic light system to coordinate all the courses. Oh, God. I thought you and just got up and got your own food. finished eating, the guests, according to tradition, are supposed to stop eating when the queen is finished. Oh, well, you, so you got to eat fast or you won't get it. <laughs> wow. uh, I'm sure the queen uh, spaces her out so that her guests can get a good meal in. I like he to personally see. inspected every last detail of wow. the opulent affair, from the elaborate flower arrangements to the tablecloths, folded in the shape of a Dutch bonnet, the horseshoe tape table, so if you want to know what shape it was. And uh, the last observation here is that, I may have mentioned this, that uh, the, the arrangement of the table had to be painstakingly precise. Each plate is exactly 18 inches apart. Every chair is an equal distance, and um, it took them, how many hours did it take to set it up? But uh, long story short, it was a big affair. Well, uh, my question is, did they serve beef wellington, and what was the red wine? Good question. They served lamb. Oh, okay. Apparently Trump is not a lamb fan. <laughs> okay, no, no, he's probably not. He wanted the cheeseburger with ketchup. No, or or uh, his uh, sirloin, well done, which is sirloin, really... Sirloin, yeah. That's why I thought I, beef wellington would have been good. Yeah, you're kind of correct there, and unfortunately... Uh, anything, and he doesn't any, drink wine, anything, so... Anything well done is... Tastes like I don't think they served steak any, floor shine. Yeah, well, they didn't. They didn't serve anything from his uh, <laughs> wine estate in Virginia. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how he has a Probably wine from est- France. Well, a yeah. man who doesn't drink uh, bought into a uh, wine. Well, it's a it's a deal. Yeah, you know. hey, it's business. You know what I mean? If it, if it made Did money. they have the wine? Did they have the, well, the menu Melania, there? Melania drinks wine, doesn't she? Sure, she's a, she's a. We got, uh, when do we start campaigning for Melania uh, 2024? Oh, no, she wasn't born here. Sorry. forgot about that. Okay. So, anyway, this ends our show for Statues and Stories. It was more stories than statutes today. No, these are interesting. And uh, I think that was very, very cool. And I think Bernard Balin should be added to the pantheon of uh, early American historians. I think he was really a, a pioneer. So next week, we're going to talk about early American historians, and we're going to talk about causes and explanations for the success of the Constitutional Convention in that miraculous summer of 1787. Well, even Benjamin Franklin, uh, who was not a holy roller, uh, requested from the first day that a prayer be said at the opening of each session. So, you know, he, you know, when you get a guy like that who was pretty secular, he must have been impressed by the situation. You realize what they were up against, the yep. 81-year-old Franklin yep. and his wisdom. To be continued next week, gentlemen. All right, well, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to WSQF 94.5 for the Statues and Stories show with Adam Levinson. 
You can hear these podcasts on live stream, which is WSQFradio.com. You can hit the tab, Statues and Stories, and get all the podcasts on all our shows, quite frankly. They're all there. So stay free, my friends. And I think it's just time to follow the yellow brick road. And we are the evacuation route from socialist nonsense, right? Uh, If you say so. Okay. Should have listened to my, oh my.